The sermon today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. So when they had come together, they, that is the disciples, asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, open our eyes, we pray, that we may see good and wonderful things in your word. Pray your spirit upon us afresh, that we may be reshaped in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ that we may continue to participate faithfully in the mission that he set before the representatives of his church in this text before us, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. And help us, we pray, to approach this mission in a Christ-like spirit, even as we hear more about precisely that Christ-like spirit even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. So today, I would like to address an important theological theme, a pastoral theme as well, that I've spoken about before. It's not for quite some time. I I spoke about it in February 2021, preaching on James chapter 1. But it's sufficiently important that I want to reintroduce it at this stage of our journey through the book of Acts. I want to reintroduce post-millennial spirituality. In order to explain what I mean by this, I need first to explain what post-millennial theology is, which will perhaps be more familiar to many of us. Post-millennial theology is the, the doctrine of history which states that Christ will return in glory only after, that is post, the millennium, hence post-millennial, where the millennium is understood as a long period of time, not a literal, but a figurative thousand years, during which, Revelation 20, Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. This period began with Jesus' ascension into heaven and his exaltation to his throne and his rule over creation as man, which is narrated in this text right here. And during this period, during this time when Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations, the church will grow and is growing gradually, bit by bit, over a long period of time, for many, many generations, eventually reaching great size. So, Mark 4, it's like the word that the church speaks is like the seed that's sown and produces a harvest 30 or 60 or 100 times what's sown. The kingdom of God itself is like leaven that works through the whole batch of dough until it's all leavened. 
It's like the mustard seed, which is this tiny little seed which is sown in the ground and grows to become the largest of all garden plants so that all the birds of the air, that is the nations of the world, can find refuge in its branches. It is like Daniel chapter 2, where we're coming to very briefly later on. It's a rock that is cut out, not by human hand, which must mean it's a holy rock, like an altar, like Exodus 20, 20, that's right, Um, which then smashes the feet of the statue representing the idolatrous nations of the world and then grows to fill the world to become this great holy mountain to which everyone may come. It is the kingdom which Haggai himself, the prophet, spoke when he said that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's post-millennial theology. Somebody asked me um, just before worship this morning, four minutes to 11. It was a great question. So what's the difference between that and what my friend thinks, which is optimistic Armill or Amill theology? The difference, I've got optimistic Armillennial friends, lots of them, mostly back in England. The difference is the grounds of the optimism. I have optimistic Amillennial friends who say, I believe the kingdom is going to grow because I've seen the power of the gospel at work. I believe the kingdom is going to grow because I've seen it happening in my generation in, among the people I've seen. I, I believe the kingdom is going to grow because God is just a kind God and he wants to save people. Where a post-millennialist is going to say yes and amen to all that, but the post-mill is going to say, yeah, but God has promised that it's going to happen. Post-millennial theology attaches its future hope to covenant promises, Old Testament covenant promises. Genesis 12, Genesis 1, certainly Genesis 17, Genesis 22, the expectations in the days of Moses and then David. So both can have an optimistic vision of the future, but post-millennial theology says this is going to happen. We are living in the early stages of the kingdom of God, you know, just you know, 40 or 50 generations in, watching while the kingdom of Christ grows gradually in extent and in depth in the hearts of men and women all across the world. So that's post-millennial theology. All familiar? So what's post-millennial th- spirituality then? Post-millennial spirituality is the hard one. See, where, where post-millennial theology addresses the question, what's going to happen in history? Post-mill spirituality addresses our hearts. It addresses the question, what should be our personal response as believers to the growth of the kingdom that post-mill theology anticipates? And what should be our demeanor as the kingdom grows? And especially, what should be our attitude when we experience personally problems, setbacks, frustrations when the kingdom doesn't grow as fast as we'd like it to. Postmill spirituality addresses the question, what's going to happen if we've been going for like 2,000 years and look at the mess that's still out there everywhere? Postmill spirituality addresses what we should feel and therefore how we should respond in that painful situation. Postmill spirituality is what's in Paul's heart. Remember in chapter 1 of Philippians where you know, Paul is in prison, okay, and he's aware that some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, seeking to stir up trouble for him. And Paul's like, I don't care, just as long as Christ is preached. I don't, it doesn't matter about me. It's pretty frustrating being in a prison, but as long as Christ is preached. It's the same attitude he's got three chapters later in chapter 4, where in the midst of great trial, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll, t- I'll tell you, rejoice. You've got no reason not to rejoice. You're not in prison. Don't be anxious about anything. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, fill your hearts and minds. Because it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Post-mill spirituality is what's in Nehemiah's heart. You remember the book of Nehemiah? And we all know Nehemiah as the man of action, the guy who went back to, um, to Jerusalem in outrage and horror that the walls have broken down and the gates burned by fire and the, the, the promised restoration after the exile hadn't happened. He's a guy who, when he sees people you know, intermarrying with people who aren't believers, he'll beat the living daylights out of them. You know, before Nehemiah went back, you know what he did? He spent four months in prayer. Just look at the dates in Nehemiah chapter 1. See, Nehemiah understood that post-mill theology, which he assuredly affirmed, has as its necessary correlate post-mill spirituality. Just chill. It's God's kingdom. Pray. Slow down. Don't be running around like a maniac just yet. Post-mill spirituality is what's in Jesus' mind, actually, in Luke's gospel. And when the the disciples have literally just begun the long journey that characterizes the whole of the second half of the gospel all the way to Jerusalem and his disciples. They get to a, they get to a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village refuses to welcome him and his disciples are like, right, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to blast them? And Jesus is like, don't be stupid. Just, just, it's okay. Post-meal spirituality is the disposition of our Lord when he encounters and experiences and responds to setbacks in precisely that way. And it's the disposition that we probably struggle harder to embrace than the theological conviction about the growth of the kingdom itself, post-meal theology. It is actually a logical implication. The, the two go together. You really, if you're going to be post-millennial in your theology, if you're going to expect the growth of the kingdom, it ought to be instinctive to us to just be able to not panic at the first sign of trouble. Like, you've, <laughs> you're winning, okay? You're, it's like somebody who invested in the S&P 500 when it was at like 200, whatever it is, and now it's at 4,000 and something, but if they knew on the day that it was 200 that it was going to get to 4,000, then they panicked when it first dropped to 199. It's like, you're an idiot, aren't you? Really? Just trust and live out that trust that the kingdom is going to go. That's post-mill spirituality. Without it, if the kingdom grows successfully, we will become arrogant and dismissive of people who don't share our theology. Without it, if the kingdom grows slowly, we will become frustrated, impatient, unsympathetic, angry, aggressive, ready to try anything, however disreputable, to try and speed things along a little bit. And there is no better place that I can think of to turn than to rediscover this crucial aspect of our piety, really, our personal disposition to the lives that Jesus has given us to live than the locus classicus, which I had to look up, apparently. I'm not really great at Latin. Um, in England, there's some Latin printed around the edge of a one-pound coin, so I did go and learn that once, but I've even forgotten that. But it, locus classicus is like the classic text, the one place that you go to find this spelled out in all its glorious color, and it's this text in front of us here. Acts chapter 1 is the, the foundation of post-mill spirituality, because in it, just look with me, you've got your Bibles open, you are going to need your Bibles today, so if you forgot to bring it with you, or you may look at your phone, okay, that is, as long as it's got a Bible on it, okay, but do remember it is a telephone, not a Bible, it's an emergency Bible, um, in it, you, you know where we are in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, 
This is the end of the 40-day period that is spoken of in verse 3, during which Jesus has been appearing and speaking of the kingdom of God, and it's like 40 days, so we're not so dumb that we don't know what that means. That's the transition time, and now the transition time is over. We're ready, Jesus. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 6, can you see? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And that question we discover in the rest of this passage embodies two misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding concerns the timing of the kingdom, at this time, the second concerns its nature to Israel. And seriously, I, I, I'm not telling you a lie here when I say what happened this week was I had plunged in with all the optimism that I normally plunge into the Bible with on Monday and Tuesday, thinking I'm going to be able to squeeze both of these points into one sermon. <laughs> what an idiot. So I got up this morning and like just you know, working through all these things and trying to pull together these thoughts and it got to about 7.30 and I suddenly thought this is hopeless. So I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm only going to preach a one-point sermon today. I've never done this before. I'm, we'll come back next week and look at the, the question of the nature of the kingdom because it is it's just, just, I can't, otherwise we'll be here at four in the afternoon. Um, here, we're just going to address the first of the misunderstandings. The misunderstanding concerning the, the timing of the coming kingdom. You notice, Jesus, and, Jesus' disciples, this moment of expectation, will you look with me at verse 6, at this time, and Jesus, as he so often does, when you ask Jesus a question, he gives a kind of a bleak answer. But the answer highlights the crucial point, which is the heart of what I want to talk about today. The kingdom will grow, but gradually. Gradually, not immediately. He doesn't rebuke their question. There are some godly desires embedded within it, which we'll see. But the way he answers it highlights he's got something in mind which is not quite what they're hoping for. And it may just be that there are one or two of us or maybe a couple of hundred of us. who we, We've got that same burning passion of the disciples. Jesus, are you, this, are you at this time going to sort the mess out? And Jesus is like, hmm. Patience. Patience. Look with me at verse 6. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, and look at Jesus' response. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. It must have been a letdown, you know? Because just think what the disciples were asking. It is very hard not to sympathize with them. Jesus, are you at this time going to replace the ungodly and violent Roman civil authorities... Are you going to bring them down from their thrones and exalt righteous men who won't take a bribe and won't undermine justice and won't acquit the guilty and imprison the innocent? Jesus, will you at this time remove those leaders among the people of Israel who conspired against you to put you to death and are now just champing at the bit to get on with the same thing against the infant church? Will you, will you at this time do that? Jesus, will you at this time put an end to the barbaric Greco-Roman practice of the exposure of infants, whereby kids who are just not wanted by their parents, or, or who are girls when their parents wanted a boy, or if they have the misfortune 
to be born to parents who weren't married and the parents can't bear the social disgrace or if the child is born with some kind of evident physical disability. Will you at this time put an end to the practice of the exposure of those infants where they're just left and dumped to die because nobody wants them? Will you do that, Jesus? You know, that practice was all over the ancient world. It wasn't just Greece and Rome. Uh, Some of you may know the famous painting called The Selection of Children in Sparta by Jean-Pierre Santour. He's an artist, I guess, I'm looking at this painting. Ancient Sparta was a great kingdom from the 7th to the 3rd century BC. And what happened when a child was born, if you know anything about Sparta, they had this really hardcore army. Basically, Sparta never built anything. They just smashed everything up that everybody else had and stole for four centuries, which is not exactly a kind of sustainable practice for everybody to try, but the Spartans were pretty good at it. And the way they got so good at it was by weeding out all the weak among their boys. So if a boy was born, what would happen is that um, he would be presented to the Gerousia, the Council of Elders, and if he was deemed to be adequate, he would be trained for war, first by his parents and taken away to be trained by the army. But if he was inadequate, he would be discarded. And in this painting, you've got the, the appalling picture of this father. And so you're looking at the painting, he's on the left, and he's walking away to the left, holding his head in his hands as, as the council banishes him with his pointed finger, get out. And it's obvious that he's got, his child is not good enough. So it's, it's not like, oh, but you can raise him if you want. No, no, we don't want that kind of stuff around here. Jesus, will you at this time put an end to all the wickedness, all the barbarism, all the ungodliness out there in the world, all the fools who have been raised to positions of political authority, all the ungodly people in positions of religious authority, will you at this time do that? And it's hard not to sympathize, isn't it? Do you feel anything like that ever, or is it just me? Is this just a sermon I need to go away and preach to myself? No, I didn't think so. There's a little bit in us, isn't there? which responds to the ungodliness of the world with a degree of frustration that it couldn't be fixed sooner. And sometimes the ungodliness is evident in what we say or in how we say it or in our demeanor towards precisely the people for whom Jesus came to die. People like the ones in those Samaritan villages whom his disciples wanted to just burn. And Jesus is like, no, silly. Remember, I've got a special place in my heart for Samaritans, John chapter 4. And his oblique response raises this question, well, what is going to happen? Like, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, and we'll come back to that in a minute or two. But verse 8, you, disciples, as representatives of the infant church, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This text, which lies at the heart of the the structure of Acts, is Jesus' answer to the question, will you at this time? And the answer is, not really. The kingdom will be established, yes, but you will not see all the earthly effects immediately. What will happen is you will receive power from the Spirit and you will witness to me, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. And that's the shape of the book of Acts, Jerusalem, Then Acts chapter 8, they're all scattered, uh, Judea and Samaria, and then ends of the earth, the book ends up in Rome, and as I mentioned last week, it's deliberately open-ended, the mission continues to this day, and and when we come back next week, Lord willing, we will 
we'll look at some of this terminology, the witnesses language, for example. The, the Greek word is martus, from which we get martyr. Yes, right. And so there is a, an element of that that Jesus is pointing to here. But at the basic level, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I'm not going to come and sort it all out for you now. I'm actually going, and you... For many, many, many generations, but to get used to the kind of long-term, gradual proclamation of the kingdom. So that our Father in heaven has time to show mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him. The kingdom will grow gradually, not suddenly. Now, what was it earlier today that made me think, no, I can't possibly possibly squeeze all this in today? (laughs) It is what's written on the remaining two pages. That's all. What could possibly go wrong of um, the notes I have to share with you today? There is some really important background to this in the book of Daniel. And if you've got your Bibles, I want to turn you back there because it helps us to understand what's going on in the book of Acts. Actually, it will orient us rightly, not just to the question we're thinking about today, this kind of gradual expansion of the kingdom, but the hold of the book of Acts itself and and indeed what the church is up to now and there are one or two things in here which are just like I can't skim past them too fast otherwise we'll all miss them probably me included so we will come back and look at this again next week but Daniel chapter 7 here's now what's going on in the book of Daniel my goodness Um, between chapters 2 and 7 Daniel sees in the form of a series of visions which are interpreted to a couple of kings after they see them in their dreams He sees a picture of history from about the 6th century BC onward to the time of Christ and beyond. He sees a series of kingdoms in chapters 2 and 7. Come back to that in a second. In chapters 3 and 6, he sees, well, there are are events um, comprising, well, there's the den of lions and then there's the fiery furnace. So it's suffering for the people of God. In chapters 4 and 5, You have four times repeated this refrain. The most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he pleases. So you take chapters two two through seven together, and they're written in Aramaic, by the way, which is the international trading language of the ancient world. They're written deliberately so that everybody can understand them. Let all the world know that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he pleases, three and four. He will give them to his people as they suffer. Sorry. Four and five. He will give them to his people as they suffer, three and six. And that kingdom will grow gradually and displace the earthly kingdoms of the world, chapters two and seven. That's the message of that central part of the book of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter two, we're going to get to Daniel seven in a second, but if you turn back to Daniel chapter two, you've got this vision that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sees. He sees this big statue, remember? And any of you went to Sunday school when you were kids, you've drawn this statue, so I ask you to cast your minds back. Maybe you built it. You had its head of gold, uh, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, feet of iron mixed with clay. Hands up if you actually made that statue. Hands up if you've only drawn it. Yeah, right. Yeah, me too. Yeah, no, 50 times probably. I used to teach Sunday school as well to kids. Right, so, and Daniel interprets this dream as a vision of four kingdoms. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom, uh, Medo-Persia. After you, Alexand- after them, Alexander in Greece. And then Rome, which is iron mixed with clay, which is the feet. And then the rocks are going to come and smash the, the feet. The statue's going to come falling down. The rock will swell to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. You see post-millennial theology. 
in chapter 2. It's a vision of the kingdom of God overthrowing the Roman Empire as it begins to spread throughout the whole world. Notice, gradual. It grows gradually to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. Yes, the feet have been smashed in first century Israel or in the first few centuries of the church as the Roman Empire starts to totter, Constantine is, Constantine is converted, uh, various other things happen, the Roman Emperor's Empire is overthrown by barbarians. There are various options about how, how that part of the image relates to the history of Rome. And then the kingdom will grow gradually, this holy mountain. It's a rock not cut out by human hands, which must mean it's an altar, Exodus 20, as I mentioned before, spreading to fill the whole earth. Right, and that, that is parallel with chapter 7. That's where I want you to turn now, because that's the bit which is really closely related to what we're looking at today. Now, what's going on here? Whereas in chapter 2 you've got a vision of a four-part statue representing the four kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God smashes it and then grows, in chapter 7 you've got a vision of four beasts, which also represent the same thing. Kingdoms of the earth, they come out of the sea, obviously, because Gentiles come from the sea. And as they come out of the sea, they are, in um, verse 9, uh, Daniel sees this vision of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, in place, fire comes out from him, destroys the beasts, but then, um, uh, verse 12, the rest of their beasts, their dominion is taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. I wonder, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I wonder if what we're seeing there is, yeah, the, the establishment of the judgment of God on the nations of the world, which is fulfilled in Christ with the inauguration of his kingdom, does not immediately bring an end to every aspect of the ungodliness of the nations of the world, yeah? Because their dominion is taken away, but their lives are prolonged, yeah? And then what you see, verse 13, you've got to look with me at this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds, remember the clouds, of heaven, there came one like a son of man, which is Jesus' favorite description of himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all nations and peoples and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So this is a vision of Jesus entering the throne room of the living God being seated and enthroned and receiving the right to rule his kingdom, which now belongs to him, and it will never be taken away, never be destroyed. And Daniel is like, he's as puzzled about this as we are. So he goes, verse 15, he says, my spirit within me was anxious, which is kind of understandable if you see stuff like this in your head while you're trying to get to sleep. The visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. It's very important that we look closely at the interpretation. He's seen a vision, which he thinks is a vision of the Son of Man, whom we know as Jesus, receiving his kingdom. And it is. But. Verse 17. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. No surprises yet, because chapter 2. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Notice the difference. Whereas in chapter 2, it's the son of man. It's the, the king who reigns. And in the vision, in the first half of chapter 7, it's the king, Jesus, 
who reigns. In the second half, in the interpretation, Daniel learns that the way that the king reigns is through his saints, the holy ones. The saints in the Bible does not mean a special subcategory of super holy Christians who've done miracles or something. It means just all those who are made holy in Christ. We're saints. The saints will receive the kingdom. Verse 27, you've got the end of this kind of poetic summary. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given not to Jesus, but to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom, plural, shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey them. So you see what's happening? Jesus, Daniel sees this vision, vision of the Son of Man being enthroned in heaven. And the interpretation is, yeah, the saints will receive the kingdom of God. Now, here's the crucial thing. Just, just think about this if you're watching. On, if, you, if you're not watching, you're listening to this on audio, then too bad. I'm, I'm doing something with my hands, which is kind of significant, right? Everyone pay attention, because this is for you, not for them. Okay? Right? Jesus is reigning up here in heaven. He's received the kingdom. The kingdom has been given to them. Who reigns? Well, Jesus reigns in and through them. Does that remind you of any books in the Bible we've been looking at recently? Oh, yeah. It's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. Turn back with me to the book of Acts. And the crucial point to understand about what we read about three hours ago in the book of in Acts chapter 1 is this. I, tell, I read this in a book by Douglas Farrow. Um, and it's like, of course, Doug Farrow is a... a Canadian theologian, I think, wrote a book called Ascension and Ecclesia. Ecclesia means church. He said, quote, I think this is a quote, what Daniel sees from above, the disciples in the book of Acts witness from below. Think for a second. Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man entering the throne room of heaven to receive his kingdom with a cloud and all that stuff. Now look down at the book of Acts. Verse 6, will you restore the kingdom at this time? Not for you to know the times and seasons, verse 7. You know that phrase, times and seasons, occurs only twice in the whole of the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's once in Daniel chapter 2, and it's once in Daniel chapter 7, except it's inverted because it's a chiasm. So it's times and seasons in chapter 2, seasons and a time in chapter 7. It's just literary theological genius. You can't miss it now, can you? It's not for you to know how long these times and seasons for which the lives of those wicked nation beasts will be prolonged, verse 7. Instead, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And then, what do they witness? They witness the first half of Daniel chapter 7, but watching from down here. Can you see? Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Well, of course it did, right? Because we already know this. Jesus is coming with the clouds of heaven in Daniel 7. Here, the, they're looking at the underneath of the cloud. It's like, I don't know if you've been in an airplane. Well, most of you've been in airplanes. I'm looking at the guy who flies them like four times a week. But, but you see clouds, you see them from underneath, and then you can see them from above. It's a lot, lot more bright from above, isn't it? From underneath, if you're just seeing clouds, it's like a bit murky. But that's where you're looking from in Acts chapter 2, which is probably why they're a bit confused. What Daniel sees is from above, okay? By the way, clouds. Why clouds? Well, at least three reasons. First, 
uh, Old Testament biblical symbolism, clouds are where God dwells, because I will be, I will lead you, my presence will be with you in a cloud in the wilderness, yes? Which then is secondly, the cloud that's resident over the tabernacle and maintained there by the continual burning of the incense and in the temple later. The point of that cloud is that you can't see anything, because you can't see through cloud. You don't really want to see the presence of the living God. That would be bad, okay? So you want to have him... And nobody can see me and live, God says. So the cloud is God's presence, which simultaneously means God is hidden from us. And then thirdly, there's another element of cloud, which is going to be relevant at various points in the book of Acts, and it's certainly relevant in Daniel. In the ancient world, there were two places you could see clouds. Up in the air, and on the distant horizon, on a clear day. If you saw clouds up in the air, you're thinking, rain. If you saw clouds on the distant horizon, you're thinking, it's an approaching army. Chariot wheels kick up clouds of dust as they approach. And probably all those images are combined here. So the Lord is a man of war. He's going out to fight for his people at his pace. So chill, right? But he's going out to fight for his people and his presence and he can't be seen. And so that's what you've got here with um, the cloud taking him out of their sight. Then verse 10 and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, probably like the two men earlier in Luke's gospel, the, the witnesses, the angels, by the resurrection, stood by them in white robes. It's the same phrase, nearly, as describing what those witnesses of the resurrection um, were wearing. Verse 11, and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Now, this is the final point at which it just totally fries my brain. I'm actually not sure what I think about this. The normal way in which people understand this text, and others, there aren't many like it, actually, is as a description of Jesus' return in glory on the last day to judge the living and the dead. He'll come with the clouds. I'm not at all persuaded that that's what this is talking about. It seems to me more likely that what it's saying is, this Jesus, who you have just seen taken in a cloud, will come into heaven, into the presence of the Ancient of Days, in the same way, with a cloud, Daniel 7. It's, it, in other words, it's not speaking about the future, long distance, thousands of years from now. It's speaking about what the disciples were being told. That's how you're supposed to understand what you've just witnessed from below. The coming, and it's the same verb in the Greek version of Daniel, the coming is not coming back to raise the dead. That will happen but that's not what this is talking about. It's the coming into the presence of the ancient of days to receive authority and power in a kingdom, which is exactly what the disciples need to know. Because if you weren't sure that Jesus had received his kingdom, all you've seen is he's just disappeared. That's not very encouraging. <laughs> but if you've seen him disappear in a cloud, and then the angels say, well, he's going to come into the presence of the ancient of days with a cloud, then if the penny finally drops you. Daniel 7, he's received his kingdom, which means that we've received it. Yeah, oh no, gradually. Darn it. Because we were hoping that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel now. So maybe what's going to have to happen is that we are going to receive power through the Spirit to preach the kingdom and to welcome all those horrible Romans into it. Which, of course, is exactly what happens. Can you see the picture? Right. Okay, I've only got one page left, so how long is that? Okay, let me be as quick as I can, right? Because there's, there's just a couple of final thoughts here, which I think it's, it's just helpful for us to uh, tease out a little bit. First is, um, the, the desire to see everything happen immediately, 
though understandable, in the end is idolatrous. Why is that? Well, eschatology is the unfolding of history through time. Time places limitations on created beings like us. It means that we don't experience the future yet. So when we're told we have to wait, we're being told, just get used to being a creature. Who's the only being who can experience the future and the present and the past all at once? That's God. The desire to have everything happen now is actually a desire to experience the world as God experiences it. It's an idolatrous desire. And so we need to repent of it and we need to be ready to embrace with all the heartache it might entail, the patience necessary to see the kingdom worked out gradually, gradually, gradually over a long period of time. And maybe, just finally, as we think about this, come to a conclusion, maybe that's one of the first things that the Lord wants us to learn, like patience. Maybe some of you have had an opportunity to discover again today, even, that you're not as patient as you thought you were. Maybe we need to learn patience. Maybe we also need to learn about our own insignificance. I mean, one of the things that we could easily misunderstand, if like in our generation the world was literally turned upside down, not literally, but figuratively turned upside down, we saw with great drama on the international stage all at once the overthrowing of all those ungodly powers. If we saw that, we might easily go around taking credit for it, which would be stupid, wouldn't it? Because actually, and here's the final point that is worth um, bearing in mind, maybe we're part of, a prob- part of the problem. The whole way in which today I have been talking and we are accustomed to thinking too much of the time takes for granted that Jesus is reigning in heaven, which is true, and Jesus is reigning within the church, which is, well, frankly, not as true as it could be, is it? Let me put it as provocatively as I can. Yes, in fact, Jesus is king, right? Jesus actually has all authority in heaven and earth. He has the right to command our obedience. How willingly do we always give it? Is it the case that every single thing we do is always cheerfully, immediately, voluntarily submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Obviously not. So why are we getting all uptight when unbelievers won't? Maybe we're part of the problem, actually. Maybe what the Lord needs to do through many generations is to work in us, to make us ready to receive that dominion, which we are increasingly receiving, but not yet experientially in its fullness, correct? Are you ready to rule the world? Are you ready to make those decisions? Do we we yet have the wisdom, the self-sacrifice, the godliness, the maturity, the grace, the kindness, the self-understanding, the empathy towards other people to actually be in charge? I mean, please, really. Once you put it like that, you think, hmm, I, I, I guess probably, Jesus, it would be a good idea if you gave this to us gradually, which means that the agenda for the growth of the kingdom has right at the top of it, item number one, my heart and my life 
and your heart and your life. And as the living God works in us, it's like what I was saying yesterday to some of the men at men's discipleship, as the living God works in us to make us more like Christ, maybe to the degree that we're more like Christ, we'll be ready to rule. If you really love the nations of the world, you really want to see the kingdom grow, you now know what you need to do. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you for the promise of the kingdom and for Jesus' godliness and perfection in ruling it and for your wisdom in so ruling it with wisdom that many of the things that we are taught in scripture to long for haven't yet happened. We pray, Father, that you'd work in us to make us ready increasingly with each passing day, with each passing generation, to be those given the privilege of seeing them come about. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.